There are so many good things um, that come uh, from living in our digital modern age. Uh, information is accessible. Uh, opinions are found all over the place. And sometimes that's really good. And sometimes that's really bad. I think anybody who's in a position of influence uh, knows that um, uh, you have way more traps to compare yourself to others or others to compare yourself to someone else uh, or uh, traps to have people give you unsolicited advice. There's all kinds of stuff at our disposal in our digital age. I know I feel that as a minister sometimes. When I first started uh, as a minister, as a pastor, um, the only people I would be compared to is maybe another church that someone went to when they were younger, when I was their youth minister, uh, or maybe a church they visited across town. And then over the last 15 years, now we have podcasts, and I've had conversations where I get compared to, to people preaching all over the world. And, um, and some of that's really good. Uh, but some of it also makes things really hard sometimes because there's all this comparison that can take place. But it's not just ministers, it's anyone in a position of influence. And I think on Mother's Day, we have to acknowledge that that goes for moms. Um, when my mom was parenting me and my other three siblings, um, she could compare herself to other women, maybe in the PTA or PTO. Maybe compare herself to women at church, or maybe they would com she would feel like they were comparing her to other people. Uh, she, she maybe could look to TV, and if she wanted to feel really bad about her mothering, she could watch Leave it to Beaver and look at Mrs. Cleaver and how she had it all figured out. Or if she wanted to feel really good about her mothering, she could watch The Roseanne Show, and uh, that would make her feel like a, an incredible mom. Um, if... Uh, if she uh, wanted to get some advice on mothering, she could maybe go to the bookstore and find a small section on advice on motherhood or find a, a magazine somewhere. But really those options were limited. And I think about you who are mothering today. And I think about how many memes you see and how many recommended blog posts and how many websites you can be referred to and how many people just would like to chime in on your personal life and tell you how to be a really incredible mom. And it can all be so very daunting. Uh, I just did a quick web search this week. I was just curious. I felt like maybe it would be overwhelming and it was. Uh, what does it take to be a great mom? And there are website after website after website after website full of always and shoulds. And I thought, I'm not even a mom. And I am overwhelmed for you as, as mothers. But in that journey, I did find one website called postpartumprogress.com. And I really appreciated their approach to what it means to be a good mom. They actually outlined about 16 things they had found on the web about what mothers always should do and uh, what they should not do. And they said, well, how about we just talk about being a good enough mom? And so they gave these eight characteristics of a good enough mom. They said a good enough mom does her best to teach her child how to live life to the fullest. She does her best to be there for her children when they need her. She does her best to teach her children the importance of self-worth, to provide food, shelter, and love, to be a good example for her children. A good enough mom does her best to make time to have fun with her kids. A good enough mom allows room for her children to make mistakes and learn from them. She does her best to teach her children how to love unconditionally. And again, I'm speaking not from experience because I'm not a mother, uh, but at least from a dad's perspective, I thought, I like that list a whole lot better. I could even transport father into mother and say, good enough, dad does his best. And I like that list better. 
And so maybe that's more helpful to you, but I'm guessing that if you're overwhelmed as a parent right now, uh, if you're going through a difficulty, that even that list is too overwhelming. One thing I would share about this list, though, is that it, it might be a great opportunity if you're trying to invest in the life of someone else who doesn't yet know Jesus like you do. Um, it might be a good starting place even for spiritual conversations because there's a lot in that list that could point people to the realities that God provides. Uh, a good enough mom does her best to help their child live life to the fullest where if you're going to that list with someone in a, a mother's group and someone doesn't know what living life to the fullest is, what about a, a coffee conversation or a lunch that helps them maybe see that Jesus is the one that came to bring us life and life what? in all of its fullness. Uh, a good enough mom does her best to set a good example for her kids. Well, what's the basis for that example? And I think of Paul's words, follow me as I follow the example of, of Jesus. So there's a lot of great spiritual parallels there. But like I said, but even maybe that's too much. Uh, maybe if you're a mom in the room and you are just feeling the daunting pressure of parenting small children, toddlers, elementary age, preteens, teenagers, college students, grown children are making decisions that you're like, I don't know what to even do with this. Um, even those eight things may feel like a lot. And so I want to give you just one thing today, uh, one thing that you can do as a mom that you can hold on to that will bring life to you and life to the ones that you're loving. And that's this, above all these things, why don't you just try to be a praying mom? Just be a praying mom. Just pray, pray for your kids, pray for the decisions that they face, pray for your own stress and your own struggles as a mom, and you'll see that God does something incredible as you seek him, not only on your own behalf, but the behalf of your children. If there's just one thing I could give you today is just to pray. I remember reading in a book by a man named Mark Batterson called The Circle Maker. He tells the story of prayers from his own mother and grandmother that even as an adult, he sees the fruit of as they've shared the prayers with him that they made for him year after year after year after year after year. I think about the prayers of my own mother. I remember coming home from camp uh, when uh, I was a sophomore. I was going to my, or finishing my sophomore year, going into my junior year of high school. And I went to camp and the challenge was made at my church camp that I should start praying daily for my future wife. And um, that sounded like a great plan to me because I'd never had a girlfriend before. And I was like, man, I really need a girlfriend. So I'll just start praying for my future wife and maybe God will solve this problem. And what started off with really selfish motivation over time became just a powerful motivation, not knowing where my wife was or my future wife would be or what she was up to. I just was praying for her. And I came home and I told my mom that I was challenged to pray for my future spouse. And I remember her saying, well, that's a good idea. I've been doing that for years. And... I can't help but think about how those prayers are now answered in the gift that I have in, in Audrey. And so that's the power of prayer. And so moms, if I can encourage you with anything, just pray honest, desperate prayers for yourself and for your kids. And, and really, this is a challenge for all of us. Even if you're not a mom yet, if you're a young woman, middle school, high school, college, if you're an adult woman, pray. If you're a young man, adult male, pray and see how God changes life as we depend upon him in prayer. 
I want to intentionally speak about prayer because as we're looking at this comeback story of Israel in the book of Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah, it's the story of God's people who have been exiled because of their collective sin, and it's a story of a comeback. And we, we call it Rise from the Ashes, this series, because quite literally they're returning to Jerusalem that lies in ruins. It's been burned to the ground, and they're trying to rebuild it from the ashes. They're, they're trying to stir new life and have a new opportunity. It's a new day. It's a new season for them. And what we find in Ezra and Nehemiah is at the heart of that for these two leaders is that they were people of prayer. Prayer has a prominent place in the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, it's seen the most in Nehemiah's life, and you'll see that this morning, they, Passage after passage, as Nehemiah writes about his time, he has these prayers, short prayers, long prayers, these little things where it says he prayed, and he was a man of prayer, and that prayer played a powerful role in their comeback. And if you're going to come back, whether it's coming back from sin and discovering the new life that Jesus offers you, or coming back from a difficult season as a parent, or in your career, or in your life, prayer will have to play a prominent role. So let's be people who pray. I want to use kind of as a launching pad for all that we share about prayer this morning, Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, verses 4 through 11. We'll be in Nehemiah mostly, but we'll jump to Ezra uh, on an occasion. We're going to be primarily in verses 4 through 11, but before we get there, I just want to uh, reminds you of what's happened in verses one through three. Nehemiah, uh, somewhere around 445, 446 BC, um, is serving King Artaxerxes in Persia. Uh, two other waves of exiles have returned to Jerusalem and uh, Nehemiah is waiting for his opportunity. When a group that has been in Jerusalem returns back to the capital, uh, one of those guys is Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, and he says, hey, uh, what's going on in Jerusalem? And Hanani shares the report. Um, well, the temple's rebuilt, uh, but, but the walls and the gates still lie in ruins. And when Nehemiah thinks about this city that's been called the city of God, that's supposed to be this place where God's glory and majesty is declared to the nations, when he hears that it's in ruins, uh, he is distraught. Look at what it says in verse 4. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's default in this moment is just to seek God in prayer. He's grieved by what he hears about Jerusalem, and so he just mourns, he fasts, and he prays. It says for some days, we don't know how long some days is. It may be two days, it may be three days, it, it may be a week, it may be a couple of weeks. But he just sought God in prayer. And then at some point, he prayed the prayer that we see beginning in verse 5. And here's how that prayer goes. It says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So it would seem that in those days he was praying desperately for his people. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. 
But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. I'll bring them back to Jerusalem. He's praying this back to God. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And Nehemiah gives us kind of the footnote, I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is distraught when he hears about Jerusalem. He prays, he mourns, he fasts for some days. Again, we don't know the extent of that time. And he tells us he's praying. He's praying for his people. He's confessing. And we just see this dynamic prayer. And this prayer gives us hints of uh, what we can learn even for our own prayer life as we attempt to make our own comebacks uh, in this world. The first thing I want to highlight from Nehemiah's prayer, it, it gives us the opportunity to think about something that is at the heart of prayer, and that is this, is that prayer is a posture or an expression of dependence by limited people on a limitless God. Prayer at its core is an expression or a posture of dependence by limited people on a limitless God. When, when we look to Nehemiah, we see this. When he hears about the story of Jerusalem, he's cupbearer to the king. He can do nothing in that moment to solve the problem. And so what does he do? God, I can't solve this, so I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna seek you. We, we, we see it even in the beginning of his prayer. He acknowledges who God is, which reminds him of who he is not, who, who Nehemiah is not. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He says, this is who you are. You're great. You're awesome. You keep your covenant of love. Later on, he says, we have failed you, but you have not failed us. So he, he remembers who God is, that he is able, even when Nehemiah is unable. And in prayer, we seek God and we converse with him and we speak to him knowing that we are dependent upon him because we are limited. There are many things we are unable to do but he is limitless and he can do far more than we could ever ask for, dream or imagine as Paul writes. But it's not just Nehemiah that acknowledges that he's dependent upon a limitless God. Ezra does this. If you want to swipe back, if you're using a smart device or turn back to Ezra chapter eight. Ezra, about 13 years before this, is leading the second wave of exiles back from Babylon. What was Babylon? Now Persia. He's got men, women, children of all ages with him. He's been given gifts from King Artaxerxes to come back and keep restoring Jerusalem. Uh, a lot of um, wealth are in these possessions that he's been given from Artaxerxes and so as they prepare to leave to make the months-long journey, I mean, months, like three or four months it would take to journey to Jerusalem, he says this in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, as he thinks about that. He says, there by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children and with all our possessions. So Ezra prepares to leave Persia to come to Jerusalem, and he says, hey, we've got a lot of men, women, and children here. We have a lot of, of, of possessions that are worth something. We're probably a target for bandits, so why don't we just take some time and fast? 
and ask God? Why don't we humble ourselves before him, dependent upon him to provide our protection and our safety in travel? So we see both Ezra and Nehemiah express their dependence upon God, and it gives us the opportunity just to reflect on that, that prayer is this posture, this expression of dependence by limited people like you and me on a limitless God who is so unlike us and so much greater than we are. And it causes me to ask the question, I hope you ask the question, are you dependent upon God? Do you depend upon God? Are you willing to say that that I am dependent upon someone else? I think that's something hard for us to say in the United States of America. We are ingrained from our earliest days with independence. We prize and praise independence. It shows up in, in our conversations with people. What, 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 do we, what do we tell people? Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, figure it out. You got yourself into it, get yourself out of it. I remember a phrase that was shared with me by people in my life. I have no idea what it meant at the time. They would say, well, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. I'm looking at my feet, I'm like, hey, I got sneakers on. I don't even have bootstraps. How am I supposed to pull myself up? But think about how many times we reinforce that idea that you need to be independent. You don't need anyone to help you. And if we need someone to help us, what's the feeling we often have because we had to ask for help? We feel like failures. We feel like we can't do it. And so we push and push and push independence. And yet we see God want us to have a posture of dependence. And I wonder if part of the reason why prayer is not prevailing in the church in America today is because we don't think we need him for the things that we should be depending upon him for. Moms, few things push you to a place of feeling limited and weak like children. Uh, those of you that parent the smallest children you have fed them, you have changed them, you've checked their temperature. Maybe you've really checked their temperature orally and rectally, like you have done it all, right? You, you have made sure they have the right uh, sleeping position, they, they have all the right, the baby monitor is set up just the right way, and yet that child still continues to cry incessantly. You've called the on-call doctor, you've called the on-call nurse, Few things like mothering push you to a place of feeling like, I just can't do this. And what can we do in those moments? We can pray. Uh, one of our sons cried so much. And we had this wonderful doctor that gave us permission to let him cry a little bit. And when we would close the door and he would cry, and we would pray. And then we would watch a sitcom to take our mind off of it. Um, it's hard. But, but prayer can, can help you and guide you and lead you in the midst of that. Those of you that are parenting middle school students, man, we need to be praying for you. Like, middle school students are amazing, but it's just an odd time. They feel it, you feel it, you watch it, they see it in the mirror unfold. You need prayer. What about those of you that are preparing to have your kids launch from the nest into a career, a vocational school, a college? 
What, what, what about those of you who are watching your children graduate from college and, and launch out into the workforce and, or into a marriage? Those things are hard. Would they push us to depend upon God and pray to him about all those milestones and all those moments and all those difficulties? And even for those of us in the room who aren't mothers and can't relate to that experience, if you're a disciple of Jesus, would we be a praying people? Would, be, would, we, would we be a praying church? Uh, there, there's been a lot that's been chronicled about the church in America, and one of the things that I've read and seen is that every movement of revival in our own country has been prompted by a great season of prayer by God's people. People praying not just individually, but praying together as a people. But that's not just what happens in America. That's happened in the history of the world. You look to the book of Acts and you look at the people and how often do you find them praying, praying together, uniting together, seeking God, dependent upon him together. What if what's leading to an anemic church in America is not so much the absence of more studies, but the absence of a praying people? Will we be people who pray? Will we be people who seek him and depend upon him for every decision and every moment? Will we understand that our prayers are, are an expression, are a posture of dependence by limited people on a limitless God? So, so when, when should we pray? Nehemiah gives us a great example. He shares how we ought to pray in every situation and it shows up here in this initial prayer Verse four, he prays when he weeps and he's distraught and he's distressed. Verses six and seven, he prays when he's convicted of sin. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He prays when he's convicted. What if when we were challenged and convicted by our own disobedience to God, his ways, his best, we simply went to him and prayed and confessed and said, God, we have wronged you. We are sorry. What would that do in our lives if we prayed in those situations? He prays for favor. Look at verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. So Nehemiah is planning to go speak to the king to make a request of him, and he's praying that God will bring him favor, that, that God will make a way where there seems to be no way, that God will go before him and help him be received in a positive way. Are you and I willing to pray for favor? Would we pray for favor before a hard conversation? We're going to talk with someone. Maybe they've hurt us or wronged us or we're confused. Would we pray for favor in advance? God, would they receive me in love? Would they be willing to hear what I have to say? Would they respond in, in gentleness? Would you help me speak with gentleness? What happens if we would pray for favor before we submit a resume or an application or apply to get into a college? What if we would pray for favor? How many circumstances can you think of in your day, situations where you could use some favor? I'm guessing you could think of many. Would you pray? 
Nehemiah and Ezra show us how to pray for protection and provision. We already saw the instance in Ezra chapter 8 where he prays for protection as they travel. Um, I'm sure maybe some of you have prayed for protection in your own travels. In Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah prays for protection. Chapter 4 verse 9 simply says, Nehemiah tells us, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. How do we know that this was a prayer for protection? Well, if you rewind to verse eight, it tells us that his enemies are plotting together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So what's the response to that trouble that's coming? We pray, praying for God to protect, God to help them, God to lead them in the midst of it. They pray for protection. Again, Ezra prayed for protection, and I wonder what would happen in our lives when we face situations that made us uneasy or threatened us or caused us to struggle. We just pray that God would lead, God would guide, God would help. I mean, how many situations in your day could you be praying in and through and about? We see Nehemiah pray for justice. Chapter four, verse four. As these people like Sambalot and Tobiah that we'll learn about in coming weeks are um, threatening and ridiculing. Here's a prayer Nehemiah offers. Hear us, our God. We are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Nehemiah is not saying, I hate these men. Nehemiah is not saying, make these men miserable. He's using a type of prayer we would call an imprecatory prayer, is the fancy word for it. It's a prayer asking God with raw emotion to act, to act in accordance with who he is. He's praying for justice. How many things can you look at in the world that we need to be praying for justice in? Where do you see people oppressed? Locally, nationally, globally. Where do we see people being victimized and hurt? Could we pray that God would act in accordance with what he sees and how he understands and and how he cares for those people? Where in your life do you need justice right now? He prays for justice again in Nehemiah 6, 14. We don't have time to to read all that. Um, Nehemiah prays for strength. There's another situation. Probably my personal favorite prayer of Nehemiah's is found in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 9. To kind of set up what we'll read there, we learn in chapter 6, verses 5 through Uh, about seven, that these enemies actually crafted what they call an open letter. They wrote an open letter. They intended for Nehemiah to open it. They intended for him to read it. They intended for him to be discouraged by it. And you can read the contents of the letter and these enemies actually come up with a bunch of false accusations. They're accusing Nehemiah of things he's never tried to do. Uh, They're accusing Nehemiah of wanting to take uh, the role of king over Jerusalem. They're they're writing this open letter, threatening to send it to King Artaxerxes, threatening that that Nehemiah would be punished, probably killed. Like they're just false accusations, uh, lying about him, uh, harassing him. And here is Nehemiah's response, verse nine. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, and here's the simple prayer. Now strengthen my hands. In the face of ridicule, in the face of opposition, in the face of difficulty, in the face of circumstances he couldn't control, all he could say in those moments were, God, strengthen my hands. He simply prayed for strength. And 
I would guess looking out at the room that we have people in this room right now who can probably adapt and adopt that prayer into their life right now. You're facing circumstances that are hard, that are difficult, that are way more difficult than you imagine. Maybe some of you are facing something like Nehemiah, false accusations, ridicule, people who seem to be bent and turned against you. And maybe you just need to adopt these words, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Maybe that's all you can muster in this moment. God, strengthen my hands. Maybe in this season in your parenting and your mothering and your fathering, maybe in this season in, in your relationship with that person that you love, that you thought you were going to marry, but then the engagement's off, but now it's back on. Like, like oh, Lord, strengthen my hands. How do you help me endure in the midst of this circumstance? Would we pray for strength? I don't know about you, but I need strength every day. And the reason why this prayer is so personal to me is going through a difficult season in my own life, I found these words and when I didn't know the words to pray, I was frustrated with people, with circumstances. God didn't seem to be answering the prayers how I was praying them. All I could find to pray was moment by moment, strength in my hands. And guess what? He gave me the strength to make it another day, to make it another week, to make it another month. And he's still helping me. He's strengthening my hands. And I know that some of you need that same strength. We can pray in all situations. One caveat here, though, as we look at these prayers of Nehemiah and Ezra, is that all of them are prayed with the ultimate goal in mind of honoring God. Our most effective prayers come when above all things we want to bring honor to him. And I'll be the first to admit that some of us have prayed, I have prayed, um, some pretty selfish prayers over the years. It's been more about me and God helping me and God doing things my way. But the most powerful prayers come when I pray for his honor and for his glory. So what would it look like to pray for his honor, for favor? What would it look like to pray for his honor, for justice? What would it look like to pray for his honor, for strength, for protection, for provision? What would it look like to pray for his honor when, when you sin, that he would not only forgive you, but help you live in an obedient way? Would we be people who pray in all situations? How do you become a person who prays in all situations? And I think Nehemiah shows us that. We realize that there's no moment too small, no moment too big, uh, that we can't seek him in prayer. One of the things I love about Nehemiah, and you've already seen it, is that it's this moment by moment practice for him. He hears from his brother Hanani, uh, the, the walls of Jerusalem still lie in ruins, and what's his default? I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna fast. Uh, chapter two, verse four, after he's had this prayer for favor in the eyes of the king, he goes before the king. The king notices that he looks sad, distraught, and, and he inquires as to why. And so the king says to him, verse four, what is it that you want? Nehemiah, what do you want me to do about this? And look at Nehemiah's response. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Just in that moment, what do you want, Nehemiah? And there's this prayer, okay, God, you help me, give me the courage. He just prays in that moment. And that's what follows in the example of Nehemiah. When people ridicule him and they make fun of his wall, if a fox, which is nimble and sleek and sly and good on its feet, would jump up on your wall, it would fall down is one of the insults that the men bring before Nehemiah. He's been laboring over this wall. And they're like, no, your wall is so weak. If a fox jumped on it, it would fall down. What does he do? He prays. He prays for God's judgment. He prays for God's justice. What does he do when the letter of false accusations come? He prays. He prays for strength. What does he do when the wall is built and the people are celebrating? They realize that they're still not obeying God's word. He prays. Nehemiah chapter 9 is all about confession and conviction and, and praying for the people. 
Nehemiah 13, as he returns to Susa, the capital of Persia, and comes back, he returns to Jerusalem. The walls are built, the temple's built, but the people have once again turned from God's word. They're selling stuff on the Sabbath. They're letting people through the gates that are, are, are bringing in their own pagan practices. They're letting some guy live in the temple who doesn't even love God. And, and so Nehemiah starts praying. And time and time again in Nehemiah 13, you hear him say, remember my God, remember me. He's calling God to act. He is a man of prayer in every single moment. If you're going to be moms who pray, women who pray, men who pray, fathers who pray, people who pray, It'll come because we pray in every situation, recognizing that no moment is too small or too large to express our dependence upon God, the limitless God, because we are a limited people. Let me ask you this question as we draw to a close. I'm gonna ask you to, by show of hands, uh, how many of you, there's a question, would rather people talk about you when there's a problem or talk with you when there's a problem? So how many of you would rather people just talk about you when there's a problem? Okay, one person, all right? Um, not very many. Uh, last service, nobody raised their hand. I don't know about the online audience. How many of you would rather someone talk with you when there's a problem? So if you're a disciple of Jesus, let me ask you this. Why is it that we spend so much time simply talking about God, about what God maybe thinks about a situation or a circumstance? Why is it that we spend so much time talking about him with other people rather than just spending time talking with him. And I'm not saying Bible studies and podcasts and sermons and, and all those things that we would do where we would talk about him are wrong. But if we only talk about God and we don't spend the time talking with him, we've missed the point. Because getting to know him through his word helps us get to know him. And getting to know him should make us want to speak with him because it helps us see that he's the great and mighty one who can help and can intervene and can make a difference in our life. So we be people who talk with him and not just about him. Here's some helps on maybe how you can do that. Just some really practical things. How can we create rhythms of talking with him moment by moment in every situation? One thing you can do is just take advantage of technology. Many of you in this room have a smartphone on you right now or a smartwatch. If not, it's, it's the car. Uh, you have a way to set alarms. What if you intentionally set alarms to prompt you to pray throughout the day? Um, share a story about a mother in my life, Audrey. Um, I think that one of the things the boys will remember about their time growing up with their mom is her prayer alarms. There have been many times in our home, and it has not been a good thing, I'm just gonna be completely transparent, we have been annoyed. Uh, we're in the middle of watching a show, and the alarm goes off on the phone. And Audrey typically is nowhere to be found, and so it just keeps going, but we have been told we cannot silence the alarm. So it just keeps going off. But here's the reason why it doesn't get silenced is because that is a prompt for her to pray for people, specific people. And some of you are in this room. And when the alarm goes off, your name shows up on her screen and it says, pray for so-and-so. And maybe even part of the situation. She's probably gonna destroy me for sharing that story. But, um, but I think our boys will remember that their mom had alarms set to pray. 
And some of those alarms have been for them. So why can't we take advantage of technology today? Why can't you go into your smartphone and, and schedule alarms throughout the day to remind you to pray for things? Or just maybe it's a general alarm that says pray. And so the alarm goes off at 827 and you had no idea what you're gonna be doing at 827 that day, but you can pray for whatever it is you're encountering in that moment. Take advantage of schedules. Like we have Google Calendar and iCalendar and Outlook. And, and what if we scheduled intentional appointments with God to speak with him, to speak with him about intentional things? You know, we talk about depending upon God in prayer, and it's not just Ezra and Nehemiah that do that. It's, it's Jesus. Like, Jesus is the example of depending upon God in prayer. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Luke gives us this picture of Jesus that he often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Like, it was a habit of his to get away to meet with God in prayer. Jesus scheduled it into his life. Hebrews chapter five, verse 7 tells us that, that he would go before God with tears and cries, submitting to God in prayer. Jesus, the son of God, depended upon God in prayer. Could, could we schedule our own dependence upon God in prayer? Could we reclaim moments that happen in our day to create a rhythm what if when we are in the shower of a morning or of an evening or of an afternoon, whenever you take your showers, and I hope you take them, what if, what if instead of just thinking about future conversations with other people or getting angry about a conversation you're never going to have with somebody else, what, what, if, what if you spent that time intentionally praying for what was coming up in your life or what had just happened? What if you reclaimed your drive time instead of always listening to a podcast or the same program or the same music? You set aside some of those commutes to intentionally pray. What if those of you that have children still at home, you reclaim some rhythms even in your day? What if you started praying with them before they went to the bus stop or before you dropped them off in the, in the line at school? I mean, I've heard your stories. Some of you loathe the drop-off line. Like you feel like you spend half your life there. Well, what if in the moments leading up to dropping off your child, you prayed with them about their day? What if in the moments picking them up, you thanked God verbally with them for their day? What if before you dropped your child off at college for their next semester, you, you prayed before you left them? Or when you picked them up, you thanked God for helping them endure another semester, another year? What, what if when first responders passed us and we pulled over to the side of the road for police cars and ambulance and, and fire trucks, we intentionally prayed for those responding and for the people they're responding to, even though we don't know them? What if when we had funeral processions coming, we pulled over them, we prayed for the grieving family as they pass? What if we reclaim these natural moments in our day? What would that do in the life of our children, in our own lives, to pray in all situations and in every moment? For some of you, maybe it's as simple as grabbing a journal. Here's my prayer journal. I don't journal in it every day. Uh, I, I like variety. My attention span isn't always that great. And so I may go days praying in a row and I may go weeks where I don't pray. And instead I'm praying out walking. Uh, I'm praying in my bed. I'm praying in a chair. But, but, but the journal can help me sometimes. I'm having trouble focusing my prayers just to write my prayers because it keeps my mind focused and I can go back and see how God has answered prayers. So maybe that's a way that you can incorporate praying into your day in every situation, moment by moment by moment. Make sure I didn't leave any of these ideas out. Um, pray scripture. There's power in praying scripture. I, I think one of the reasons why that prayer 
uh, strength in my hands has been so meaningful to me is that I'm praying God's own words back to him. There's power in that. There's power in praying. So as you read his word, take a piece of it and just pray that back to the Father and see how he answers you and intercedes and intervenes. Let's become a people of prayer. Oswald Chambers is famous for his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, and here's what he writes about prayer. He says, the correct concept is to think of prayer as the breath in our lungs and the blood from our hearts. Our blood flows and our breathing continues without ceasing. We are not even conscious of it, but it never stops. Prayer is not an exercise. It is the life of the saint. What would happen if prayer was our life? What we see in Nehemiah, what we see in Ezra, what we see in Jesus, it's echoed uh, even in the words of the New Testament. Just a couple passages you're probably familiar with. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 reminds us, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And when we pray in every situation, what's the result? Verse 7, the peace of God that transcends all understanding, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Or what of the words to the Thessalonians? First Thessalonians chapter four. Sorry, chapter five, uh, verse 17. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. What if we became people of prayer that would pray in all things? So the invitation to you as a disciple of Jesus, whether you're a mother, a father, man, woman, child, that we would be a people who pray. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you with one more thing, is that maybe you've never experienced the power of prayer. Um, I would love for you to take home today the, this, this sentiment that, that God cares deeply for you, and even if you're not meeting with him in prayer, he's already been praying for you. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 has this powerful picture of Jesus, and it tells us that Jesus lives to intercede for us. That intercede is a prayer word. Intercession, it's praying on behalf of someone else. And Hebrews 7 looks to Jesus, who's already ascended to the Father, who's waiting to return to make all things new, and it says that he lives to intercede for us. Now, it's not just followers of Jesus, that's every human being. Jesus, God's Son, wants you to encounter his incredible love, and so he's praying for you. He's, he's praying with God for you, even if you're yet to pray with God about your own life. And if you'd like to meet that God who cares that much for you, we would love to help you, and that's where the emailing us at connect11christian.org, scanning the QR code, or filling out a physical form can help us meet you and help you meet Jesus in your own spiritual journey. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for these ancient yet timeless words of Nehemiah, the example of Nehemiah. I thank you for the consistency we see in scripture, not just from them, but from Jesus and others about how powerful prayer is. And God, as we've sat in this service, um, when many entered the room, um, you could smell bacon and waffles because of our students upstairs having breakfast and that smell slowly dissipated. But I, I think of that aroma and how 
there's a picture of prayers in scripture that it's a pleasing aroma to you. And uh, I just pray that you would help our prayers um, bring great pleasure to you and we would see the power in them. God, for our moms today, would you help them pray those desperate prayers and would you meet them there? And God, for the rest of us, as we seek you, as we pray to you, may we be dependent upon you and made whole. It's in your name we pray, amen.